Book Three, The Church of the Servant Girls, Part Two, of The Prophets of Religion by Upton Sinclair. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Holy Roman Empire. The system thus self-revealed you admit is appalling in its squalor but you say that at least it is milder and less perilous than the church which burned Giordano Bruno and John Huss. But the very essence of the Catholic Church is that it does not change. Semper idem is its motto. The same yesterday, today, and forever. The same in Washington, as in Rome or Madrid the same in a modern democracy as in the Middle Ages. The Catholic Church is not primarily a religious organization. It is a political organization, and proclaims the fact, and defies those who would shut it up in the religious field. The Reverend S. B. Smith, a Catholic doctor of divinity, explains in his Elements of Ecclesiastical Law Protestants contend that the entire power of the Church consists in the right to teach and exhort, but not in the right to command, rule, or govern, whence they infer that she is not a perfect society or sovereign state. This theory is false, for the Church, as was seen, is vested jure divino with power, one, to make laws, two, to define and apply them, potestas judicialis, three, to punish those who violate her laws, potestas coercitiva. And this is not one scholar's theory, but the formal and repeated proclamation of infallible popes. Here is the Syllabus of Errors, issued by Pope Pius Ninth. December 8, 1864, declaring in substance that the state has not the right to leave every man free to profess and embrace whatever religion he shall deem true. It has not the right to enact that the ecclesiastical power shall require the permission of the civil power in order to the exercise of its authority. Then, in the same syllabus, the rights and powers of the Church are affirmed in substance. She has the right to require the State not to leave every man free to profess his own religion. She has the right to exercise her power without the permission or consent of the State. She has the right of perpetuating the union of Church and State. She has the right to require that the Catholic religion shall be the only religion of the state, to the exclusion of all others. She has the right to prevent the state from granting the public exercise of their own worship to persons immigrating from it. She has the power of requiring the state not to permit free expression of opinion. You see, the holy office is unrepentant and unchastened. You, who think that liberty of conscience is the basis of civilization, 
ought at least to know what the Catholic Church has to say about the matter. Here is Monsignor Seeger in his Plain Talk About Protestantism of Today, a book published in Boston and extensively circulated by American Catholics. Freedom of thought is the soul of Protestantism. It is likewise the soul of modern rationalism and philosophy. It is one of those impossibilities which only the levity of a superficial reason can regard as admissible. But a sound mind, that does not feed on empty words, looks upon this freedom of thought only as simply absurd, and, what is more, as sinful. You take the liberty of thinking, nevertheless. You feel safe because the law will protect you. But do you imagine that this law applies to your Catholic neighbors? Do you imagine that they are bound by the restraints that bind you? Here is Pope Leo Thirteenth in his encyclical of 1890. And please remember that Leo Thirteenth was the beau ideal of our capitalist statesmen and editors, as wise and kind and gentle-souled a pope as ever roasted a heretic. He says, If the laws of the state are openly at variance with the laws of God, if they inflict injury upon the church, or set at naught the authority of Jesus Christ, which is vested in the supreme pontiff, then indeed it becomes a duty to resist them, a sin to render obedience. And consider how many fields there are in which the laws of a democratic state do and forever must contravene the laws of God as interpreted by the Catholic Church. Consider, for example, that the Pope, in his decree Ne Temere, has declared that Catholics who are married by civil authorities or by Protestant clergymen will be living in filthy concubinage. Consider in the same way the problems of education, burial, prison discipline, blasphemy, poor relief, incorporation, mortmain, religious endowments, vows of celibacy. To the above list, as given by Gladstone, one might add many issues, such as birth control, which have arisen since his time. What the Church means is to rule. Her literature is full of expressions of that intention, set forth in the boldest and haughtiest and most uncompromising manner. For example, Cardinal Manning, in the pro-cathedral at Kensington, speaking in the name of the Pope, I acknowledge no civil power. I am the subject of no prince. I claim more than this. I claim to be the supreme judge and director of the consciences of men, of the peasant that tills the field, and of the prince that sits upon the throne of the household of privacy, and the legislator that makes laws for kingdoms. I am the sole, last, supreme judge of what is right and wrong. TEMPORAL POWER 
What this means is that here in our American democracy, the Catholic Church is a rebel, a prisoner of war who bides his time, watching for the moment to rise in revolt, and meantime making no secret of his intentions. The pious Leo XIII, addressing all true believers in America, instructed them as to their attitude in captivity. The church amongst you, unopposed by the constitution and government of your nation, fettered by no hostile legislation, protected against violence by the common laws and the impartiality of the tribunals, is free to live and act without hindrance. Yet, though all this is true, it would be very erroneous to draw the conclusion that in America is to be sought the type of the most desirable status of the Church, or that it would be universally lawful or expedient for State and Church to be, as in America, dissevered and divorced. The fact that Catholicity with you is in good condition, nay, is even enjoying a prosperous growth, is by all means to be attributed to the fecundity with which God has endowed his church. But she would bring forth more abundant fruits if, in addition to liberty, she enjoyed the favor of the laws and patronage of the public authority. Accordingly, here is Father Phelan of St. Louis, addressing his flock in the Western Watchman, June twenty seventh, 1913. Tell us we are Catholics first, and Americans or Englishmen afterwards. Of course we are. Tell us, in the conflict between the Church and the civil government, we take the side of the Church. Of course we do. Why, if the government of the United States were at war with the Church, we would say tomorrow, To hell with the government of the United States! And if the Church and all the governments of the world were at war, we would say, To hell with all the governments of the world! Why is it that in this country, where we have only seven percent of the population, the Catholic Church is so much feared? She is loved by all her children and feared by everybody. Why is it that the Pope has such tremendous power? Why, the Pope is the ruler of the world. All the emperors, all the kings, all the princes, all the presidents of the world are as these altar-boys of mine. The Pope is the ruler of the world. You recall what I said at the outset about power, the ability to control the lives of other men, to give laws and moral codes, to shape fashions and tastes, to be revered and regarded, here is a man swollen to bursting with this power. Dressed in his holy robes, with his holy incense in his nostrils, and the faces of the faithful gazing up at him awe-stricken, hear him proclaim, The church gives no bonds for her good behavior. She is the judge of her own rights and duties, and of the rights and duties of the state. And lest you think that an extreme example of ultramontanist arrogance, listen to the Boston Pilot, April 6, 1912, 
speaking for Cardinal O'Connell, whose official organ it is. It must be borne in mind that even though Cardinals Farley, O'Connell, and Gibbons are at heart patriotic Americans and members of an American hierarchy, yet they are as Cardinals foreign princes of the blood, to whom the United States, as one of the great powers of the world, is under an obligation to concede the same honors that they receive abroad. Thus, were Cardinal Farley to visit an American man-of-war, he would be entitled to the salutes and to naval honors reserved for a foreign royal personage, and at any official entertainment at Washington the Cardinal will outrank not merely every cabinet officer, the Speaker of the House and the Vice President, but also the foreign ambassadors, coming immediately next to the Chief Magistrate himself. Incidentally, it may be mentioned that when a royal personage not of sovereign rank visits New York, it is his duty to make the first call on Cardinal Farley. Knights of Slavery Such is the worldly station of these apostles of the lowly Jesus. And what is their attitude towards their brothers in God, the rank and file of the membership, whose pennies grease the wheels of the ecclesiastical machine? His Holiness the Pope sent over a delegate to represent him in America, and at a convention of the Federation of Catholic Societies, held in New Orleans in November 1910, this gentleman, Diomedi Falconio, delivered himself on the subject of capital and labor. We have heard the slave code of the Anglican disciples of Jesus, the revolutionary carpenter. Now let us hear the slave code of his Roman disciples. Human society has its origin from God and is constituted of two classes of people, the rich and the poor which respectively represent capital and labor. Hence it follows that according to the ordinance of God, human society is composed of superiors and subjects, masters and servants, learned and unlettered, rich and poor, nobles and plebeians. Unless this should not be clear enough, the Pope sent a second representative, Monsignor John Bonzano, who, speaking at a general meeting of the German Catholic Central Verein, St. Louis, 1917, declared, One of the worst evils that may grow out of the European war is the spreading of the doctrine of socialism, and the Catholic Church must be ready to counteract such doctrines. We must be ready to prevent the spread of socialism and to work against it. As I understand, you have a society of wealthy people in St. Louis ready for such a campaign. You have experienced leaders who are masters in their kind of work. They are always insistent to show that this wealth was and is in close touch with the church, and therefore it will not fail." This, you perceive, is the complete thesis of the present book, 
which therefore no doubt will be entitled to the Nihil Obstat of the censor theologue and the imprimatur of Johann Josephus Archiepiscopus St. Ludovici. No wonder that the experienced leaders of America, our captains of industry and exploiters of labor, are forced, whatever their own faith may be, to make use of this system of subjection. A few years ago we read in our papers how a Jewish millionaire of Baltimore was presenting a fortune to the Catholic Church to be used in its war upon socialism. The late Mark Hanna, the shrewdest and most far-seeing man that big business ever brought into power, said that in twenty years there would be two parties in America, a capitalist and a socialist, and that it would be the Catholic Church that would save the country from socialism. That prophecy was widely quoted, and sank into the souls of our steel and railway and money magnates, from which time you might see, if you watched political events, a new tone of deference to the Roman hierarchy on the part of our ruling classes. Today you cannot get an expression of opinion hostile to Catholicism into any newspaper of importance. The Associated Press does not handle news unfavorable to the Church, and from top to bottom the politician takes off his hat when the sacred host goes by. Said Archbishop Quigley, speaking before the children of the Mary Sodality, I'd like to see the politician who would try to rule against the church in Chicago. His reign would be short indeed. PRIESTS AND POLICE And how is it in our national capital, the palladium of our liberties? As a means of demonstrating the power of the church and the subservience of our politicians, the Catholics have invented what they call the Cardinal's Day Mass. An elaborate procession of high ecclesiastics, dressed in gorgeous robes and jewels, through the streets of Washington, accompanied by a small army of policemen, paid by non-Catholic taxpayers. The Cardinal seats himself upon a throne, and our political rulers make obeisance before him. On Sunday, January 14, 1917, there were present at this political mass the following personages, four cabinet members and their wives, the Speaker of the House, a large group of senators and representatives, a general of the army and his wife, an admiral of the navy and his wife, the chief justice of the Supreme Court and his wife, and another justice of the Supreme Court and his wife. And understand that the Church makes no secret of its purpose in conducting such public exhibitions. Here is the pious Pope Leo XIII again, in his encyclical of November 1, 1885. All Catholics must make themselves felt as active elements in daily political life in the countries where they live. They must penetrate, wherever possible, in the administration of civil affairs, must constantly exert the utmost vigilance and energy 
to prevent the usages of liberty from going beyond the limits fixed by God's law. All Catholics should do all in their power to cause the constitutions of states and legislation to be modeled on the principles of the true church. And following these instructions, the Catholics are organized for political work. There are the various Catholic societies, such as the Knights of Columbus, secret, oath-bound organizations, the military arm of the papal power. These societies boast some three million members, and control not less than that many votes. The one thing that you can be certain about these votes is that on every public question, of whatever nature, they will be cast on the side of ignorance and reaction. Thus it was the influence of the Catholic societies which put upon our national statute books the infamous law providing five years imprisonment and five thousand dollars fine for the sending through the mail of information about the prevention of conception. It is their influence which keeps upon the statute books of New York State the infamous law which permits divorce only for infidelity, and makes it collusion if both parties desire the divorce. It is these societies which, in every city and town in America, are pushing and plotting to get Catholics upon library boards, so that the public may not have a chance to read scientific books, to get Catholics into the public schools and on school boards, so that children may not hear about Galileo, Bruno, and Ferrer, to have Catholics in control of police and on magistrates' benches, so that priests who are caught in brothels may not be exposed or punished. You are shocked at this. You think it a vulgar jest, perhaps. But during a period of vice-raids in New York, I was told by a captain of police, himself a Catholic, that it was a common thing for them to get priests in their net. Of course, the official added good-naturedly, we let them slip out. I understood that he had to do that, for the Pope, in his motu proprio decree, has forbidden Catholics to bring a priest into court for any civil crime whatsoever. He has forbidden Catholic policemen to arrest, Catholic judges to try, and Catholic lawmakers to make laws affecting any priest of the Church of Rome. And of course we know, upon the authority of a cardinal, that the Pope is the sole, last, supreme judge of what is right and wrong. He has held that position for a thousand years and more, and wherever you consult the police records throughout the thousand years, you find the same entries concerning Catholic ecclesiastics. I turn to Riley's Illustrations of London Life from Original Documents, and I find in the year 1385 a certain chaplain, whose name is considerately suppressed, had a breviary stolen from him by a loose woman, because he has not given her any money, either on that night or the one previous. In 1320 John de Slaughter, a priest, is put in the tower 
for being found wandering about the city against the peace. And Richard Hayring, a priest, is indicted in the ward of Farringdon and in the ward of Crepplegate as being a bruiser and night-walker. That this has been going on for six hundred years is due not to any special corruption of the Catholic heart, but to the practice of clerical celibacy, which is contrary to nature, a transgression of fundamental instinct. It should be noted that the purpose of this transgression, which pretends to be spiritual, is really economic. It was the means whereby the church machine built up its power through the Middle Ages. The priests had children then, as they have them today, but these children not being recognized, the church machine remained the sole heir of the property of its clergy. THE CHURCH MILITANT Knowing what we know today, we marvel that it was possible for Germany to prepare through so many years for her assault on civilization, and for England to have slept through it all. In exactly the same way, the historian of a generation from now will marvel that America should have slept, while the new Inquisition was planning to strangle her. For we are told with the utmost explicitness precisely what is to be done. We are to see wiped out these gains of civilization for which our race has bled and agonized for many centuries. The very gains are to serve as the means of their own destruction. Have we not heard Pope Leo tell his faithful how to take advantage of what they find in America? Our easy-going trust, our quiet certainty of liberty, our open-handed and open-homed and hail-fellow well-met democracy? We see the army being organized and drilled under our eyes, and we can read upon its banners its purpose proclaimed. Just as the Prussian military caste had its slogan, Deutschland über alles, so the Knights of Slavery have their slogan, Make America Catholic! Their attitude to democratic institutions is attested by the fact that none of their conventions ever fails in its resolutions to deeply deplore the loss of the temporal power of our father the Pope. Their subjection to priestly domination is indicated by such resolutions as this, bearing date of May 13, 1914. The Knights of Columbus of Texas, in annual convention assembled, prostrate at the feet of your holiness, present filial regards with assurances of loyalty and obedience to the Holy See, and request the papal blessing. On June 10, 1912, one T. J. Carey of Palestine, Texas, wrote to Archbishop Bonzano, the apostolic delegate, must I, as a Catholic, surrender my political freedom to the Church? And by this I mean the right to vote for the Democratic, Socialist, or Republican parties when and where I please? The answer was, You should submit to the decisions of the Church, even at the cost of sacrificing political principles. 
and to the same effect Monsignor Preston in New York City, January 1st, 1888, the man who says, I will take my faith from Peter, but I will not take my politics from Peter, is not a true Catholic. Such is the papal machine, and not a day passes that it does not discover some new scheme to advance the papal glory. A Catholic battleship in the United States Navy, Catholic chaplains on all ships of the Navy, Catholic holidays, such as Columbus Day, to be celebrated by all Protestants in America. Thirty million dollars worth of church property exempted from taxation in New York City. Mission bells to be set up at the expense of the state of California. State support for parish schools, or if this cannot be had, exemption of Catholics from taxation for school purposes so on through the list which might continue for pages. More than anything else, of course, the papal machine is concerned with education, or rather with the preventing of education. It was in its childish days that the race fell under the spell of the priestly lie. It is in his childish days that the individual can be most safely snared. Suffer little children to come unto the Catholic priest, and he will make upon their sensitive minds an impression which nothing in after life can eradicate. So the mainstay of the new Inquisition is the parish school, and its deadliest enemy is the American school system. Listen to the Reverend James Conway of the Society of Jesus in his book, The Rights of Our Little Ones. Catholic parents cannot, in conscience, send their children to American public schools, except for very grave reasons approved by the ecclesiastical authorities. While state education removes illiteracy and puts a limited amount of knowledge within the reach of all, it cannot be said to have a beneficial influence on civilization in general. The state cannot justly enforce compulsory education, even in case of utter illiteracy, so long as the essential physical and moral education are sufficiently provided for. And so, at all times and in all places, the Catholic Church is fighting the public school. Eternal vigilance is necessary, as America, the organ of the Jesuits, explains. Sometimes it is a new building code, or an attempt at taxing the school buildings, which creates hardships to the parochial and other private schools. Now it is the free textbook law that puts a double burden on the Catholics. Then again it is the unwise extension of the compulsory school age that forces children to be in school until they are 16 to 18 years old. And if you wish to know the purpose of the Catholic schools, hear Archbishop Quigley of Chicago speaking before the children of the Mary Sodality in the Holy Name Parish School. Within twenty years this country is going to rule the world. Kings and emperors will pass away, and the democracy of the United States will take their place. 
the West will dominate the country, and what I have seen of the Western parochial schools has proved that the generation which follows us will be exclusively Catholic. When the United States rules the world, the Catholic Church will rule the world. End of Book 3, Part 2